Welcome to the Innovation from the Inside podcast. This series is named for an intensive at Size Center for Innovative Thinking at Yale and is a collection of interviews as well as relevant lectures that highlight a key belief, one which we've shared with our students from the very beginning of the semester, that innovation is a practice, a set of principles and repeatable habits to be infused in organizations large and small in service of incubating, developing, and launching the new. I'm Matt Hooper, and on today's episode, we will be hearing from Anne Mette Toftgard, CEO at LB, and Barrett Krish, CTO of Time Magazine, on how they're transforming their businesses from the inside, as well as highlights from the lectures that preceded each of their appearances in our intensive. At a time of tremendous uncertainty, our guests in this episode provided us with a template for navigating that uncertainty and for embracing change. We produced this episode and this series as a whole in order to remind us all that innovation can be achieved anywhere, even, or perhaps especially, from the inside. As many listeners know, we used a framework provided by the book Dreams and Details, co-authored by Jim Snabe and Mikhail Troll, and a very important idea in the book had to do with turning your business from a suite of products or services and into a platform. I addressed this point, as well as a few others, in the lecture posted two days before the session. Two weeks ago, in our second session, we covered some of the key ideas around mapping the details of your entrepreneurial venture. Prepare for an unknowable future. Build a structure for collecting the best ideas around you, including your own. Don't be bound by rigid plans when considering new opportunities. And say farewell to hierarchical management. We also heard from Barclays Open Innovation Lab about how new banking platforms do not have cash or branches, and that the boundaries of their innovation ecosystem were open to external entrepreneurs who are constantly bringing new ideas to their roadmaps, right? That was the open innovation model we discussed. This week, we're going to talk more about this last point, the platform. This is a very important session. It's built around this very powerful, very necessary idea, having the right platform for change to increase your speed of innovation. So you've got that buy-in from internal stakeholders. So you have a plan mapped out and a structure for how to launch your innovation, great. Now comes the hard part. Platforms replace assets. What do Airbnb and Facebook have in common? They are both platforms. Each of them base their value on the number of users who interact with them, not on anything they own outright. Airbnb is not a hotel and Facebook is not a publisher. However, they have all the influence of traditional hotels and publishers, but few of the costs associated with those businesses this allows for extraordinary speed and growth. These two companies are not rare meteors in the sky, however. More than 60% of the most valuable companies today are digital companies, relatively young, with business models based on digital platforms, not mass-produced products. If you are able to think of your entrepreneurial innovation as a platform and not a product, you are not only able to think of the unprecedented scale afforded to you by digitization, you are also able to think of the scope. In fact, Jim Hagerman Snobby in his book, Dreams in Details, argues that economies of scope have come to replace the economies of scale that businesses relied upon in the past to achieve size and scale. If a service model allows you to rethink your business's value and culture such that you are deprioritizing the product and prioritizing the platform instead, then you should be fairly well positioned for another idea that Snobby goes on to discuss, the change of season. Entrepreneurs are on borrowed time to embrace new service models that enable and reward change. Plain and simple. It's time you could otherwise be working at your day job. It's time which prohibits you from completing the tasks by which your performance is measured. And the more buy-in you get, the higher the stakes become for your colleagues too. So when the road gets tough, when you must pivot when the unknowable happens, and it will, 
your platform will come in handy. But what about when you are threatened by an upstart unforeseen competitor or a shift in customer demand or a global pandemic? Then it's not merely about how swiftly you've transitioned to a platform model or how successful your platform is. It matters how you adapt to the change of season. And Snabe says you can, quote, divide the signs of a season change into three levels, reactive, active, and proactive. Reactive, crises and visible changes. Active, danger signals under the surface. Proactive, scouting for new seasons. We all know we don't want to be reactive. I mean, we can identify those when we see them, can't we? Microsoft Zune, anyone? To be active is good, sure. I mean, we saw what happened when Warner Brothers took a look over at Disney's stock price and created a cinematic universe of their own to rival Marvel's, but didn't quite work, did it? No, to be proactive is the best way to weather the change of season. To constantly be on the hunt, to be anticipating the macro trends and position your business accordingly, this is the stuff of truly successful corporate innovation. On the day of the session, Anne Mette Toftgard presented to our students before our interview, addressing how she at her company has also been inspired by the Dreams and Details framework, working to turn her own insurance company into an insure tech platform. So um, what we realized uh, when we looked into what have we been doing for the last 140 years, we realized that, hmm, we're in the insurance market, but if we knew 140 years ago what we know today, would we actually sell insurance? Probably not. We would just protect our members, but we would do it in another way. Data and technology gives us the opportunity to protect our members in different ways. So we wouldn't sell insurance then, but at that time, that was the only option. Today, we will actually be able to protect our members without the insurance part. So our revitalized purpose um, going forward is that we went out and said to everyone, the public in Denmark, the stakeholders, the members, uh, our partners, together we will make insurance redundant. We think we can do that because technology and data gives us the possibility uh, with IoT devices um, to make sure that your house does not burn, your house is not flooded, your purse is not stolen, your car does not have accidents. So we will go from being an insurance provider to being a service provider. So I hope that you can see that the transformation of our business model as an insurance company is enormous and it could be compared to the transformation of Kodak or Blockbuster. After the presentation, we dove further into these themes during our interview. So Anne, first of all, thank you. Second of all, um, you're sort of a, in Dreams and Details, there's a lot of talk about uh, the change of season. And that's an idea that we've presented to the students here this week, right? There it's, it's, you can either be reactive, active, or proactive vis-a-vis -vis the, 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 the very complicated future that company after company finds themselves in. You've clearly taken a proactive step. You are anticipating something. And in a nice kind of meta layer, your proactive step is building more proactivity, right? You're, you're, you're building a, a sort of premonition service 
so that you don't have to be reactive when something's already happened. It's about keeping your members safe rather than reacting to it as a, as a typical insurer would. My first question is probably the most basic, which is when did you decide to become proactive? When did you decide to become a platform? I think it was a journey. Um, and we eventually decided, uh, I think it's it's almost two years ago, actually. Um, we um, actually, a, a, a bunch of us went to uh, Singularity University because we also yeah. wanted to uh, find out, you know, what's going on. Uh, yeah, on the- not familiar with it. That was founded by Ray Kurzweil, right? And that's in, uh, and that's yeah. in California. Yeah, just, just some context. Yeah. That yeah, that's, that's actually amazing on, uh, you know, just, to, um, to broaden your horizon, like in a big scale. Yep. Um, but we, um, of course, we had to, um, we had to, um, to take the board on this, um, on this journey that, you know, actually, we're gonna, we're gonna make ourselves obsolete. <laughs> we're gonna do something completely different. Um, but I think that, you know, um, having those conversations makes it extremely, um, wow, you know, this is, this is what's going to happen. So yep. how do we do it if we want to, you know, go on this journey? Uh, another approach could have been, of course, just to say that we'll just be in this insurance business for 20 years and then we'll sell the company. Um, but it's been, oh. it's been very, um, I think it's been a natural conversation that um, actually it didn't end uh, two years ago, but I think we established the fact that this is going to happen. And, Yes, we wanna we wanna go on this journey two years ago, and and then we uh, just planned how to do it. And it's been a year ago that we launched, um, and it's going. Um, it's amazing, and I think we have we're the third largest company in Denmark. Um, but I think like uh, press wise and uh, public wise, we have like taken the scene. So, a lot of leaders look at those same stories. You know, don't become Kodak, don't become Blockbuster, right? As, as you said, we've mentioned that in, our, in, in past sessions. It takes a certain amount of gumption and a certain amount of um, self-belief to say, this isn't going to actually put us out of a job. It's going to give us our new jobs, right? Because you're not really um, dismantling yourself. You're adapting. But that, that's the point of the innovation. Uh, in the course of the last two years, right, leading up to last year's launch, like between your visit to Singularity University and the restructuring, what were those conversations like and how frightened were stakeholders or were they not frightened at all? Because a few minutes ago when we were doing a poll among students, um, so many of the, the answers to the difficulties about what entrepreneurship uh, can lead to, it's, sorry, the most difficult parts of entrepreneurship involve corporate bureaucracy and stakeholder support. So what was that like? What were those conversations like as you started to evangelize and say, we're completely changing our business, come along for the ride, we don't want to end up like Kodak? Um, I, I actually don't think that anybody was scared at any time. Um, I, I think that there was a sense of, um, you know, if we believe that this is going to happen, we might as well, you know, speak about um, how do we want to deal with it? Um, mm -hmm. Do we want to go on this journey? Because of, of course I agree, it's a journey. Um, and it's also to adapt, I agree. Um, but I think at the same time, uh, we were very realistic, um, trying to be at least. Sure. Um, 
we were we were like okay but you know we instead of just going no 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 nothing's going to happen nothing is going to happen we we um we thought that okay we'll we'll try to 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 see if we can um change and become a platform um and if it fails or if we can see that you know google or amazon or whatever is going to take over the market well, then we yeah, have, yeah. then we'll be you, we will be ahead of ourselves so we will just go to Google and say, okay, um, can we help you and maybe take on another role? So instead of making ourselves not relevant, we'll just adapt to, you know, what we see, whatever changes we see. And, and we might not, I mean, there's a realization that we'll try and we'll do our very best, but we might not be able to make this transformation. Well, that but brings up not, an interesting, yeah, that brings up an interesting point about Google and Amazon which is, do you consider them competitors now? Because if, you know, if you're starting from the idea that I'm a digital company and I can expand as wide as needed, as long as I'm offering supreme customer satisfaction based on data, based on really understanding them, um, it doesn't sound like your competitors then are other, they're certainly not traditional insurance businesses. Where do you, no. so, so who, I guess who's in your lane, right? Who, uh, you know, with whom are you competing? That's a very good question because, um, Actually, um, what we're thinking at this at this time, and it might not it might not be true in a few years. Uh, I don't know what that would be examples in the U.S. Um, in Denmark, it would be you know the service providers, the the people that are already you know the companies that are already setting up burglar alarms or setting up leak bots or taking Amelia would be a, a competitor uh, because if you combine the data with the service providers that have all these IoT um, devices, then they might take over the market. So, um, so it will not be insurance companies. It it will probably not be insurance companies, um, but it might be Google and Amazon if they team up with the right service providers, the people that can actually go to your home and install those all those things. Um, but it, it's hard to say. We're hoping that actually we're ahead of, uh, you know, the development, but let's see. And so, no, because that, that's how I think of these things a lot too. I'm sure so many of the students do as well. That the, the, the big, once you start to pivot this way or adapt, I should say, I want to be careful about that word, adapt in this way, you're not competing with those you were competing with just a few years ago. Um, yes. So what, so uh, again, to go back to the, uh, dreams and details framework, which I think is very helpful. The, the way that service models are talked about, which are sort of uh, similar ideas of platform, is that we're no longer in an economy based on products or, or assets, right? Those are synonymous words there. We're moving into a, a situation where the most innovative companies um, like Airbnb can have market caps larger than any hotel group, provide very similar services to a hotel, but own no real estate uh, that, that Facebook can, and I don't want to get into the ethical dubiousness of this because I think there really is some, has all the responsibilities of a publisher, but acts and defends itself as a platform. So those, they're not owning any real assets the same way the, the, the very traditional sort of industrial era economy thinks of owning assets, right? Do you feel like you don't own assets? Because you do have members. And if you do still have assets as a platform company or as a company becoming a platform, what are they? What do you still own? Interesting question as well. 
Um, the working thesis at this time is that it will be us who partner up with um, different companies to install the devices in the customers' homes. Okay. So that when they buy the insurance product from us, it will be um, prevention on yeah. you know the front of the shelf. And if all else fails, we will pay out the claim. So that we, we own the total solution. But um, something that we're wondering about is if we fast forward a few years, will that still be the case? Because of course we will see a lot of customers will be buying their own devices and then they contact us and we say, no, 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 you, you need to exchange all of them because we have this one device. Um, and will that be a viable business model? We don't know yet, but what we truly own, what we truly own is the trust of our customers. I mean, they trust us to take care of their insurance needs and we need to make them trust us, take care of their prevention needs. To, to build for the future and have your service be, sorry, your platform be in turn something that builds for the future is a really interesting story. Like the way you have to think about your company's future is very similar to how your customers have to think about their future, right? How do we prevent bad things from happening? How do you prevent becoming um, an also ran insurer? How do your customers <laughs> plan to never be flooded, never have their car stolen, right? It's, it's, it's all about getting out in front of something. Um, have you received any pushback about going from, like from your customers, sure your members, sorry, uh, to say things like, hey, we know all this about you. We want to be data collectors, but we're on your side. We're doing this to keep you safe. Because there is some pushback about what we sort of commonly, at least in the States, call big tech overreach right now. It's a very new cultural phenomenon, but it's happening, right? Some people want to unplug their Alexas. They're not as um, excited about the IoT revolution, maybe they were two, three years ago, because there are a lot of opportunities for misinformation, for surveillance, for these sorts of things. That's another whole group of... Um, folks whose loyalty you need to get right you you had to get the loyalty of your stakeholders now you have to win over the loyalty and sort of renew the loyalty of your customers you, you call them members has there been any member pushback from this this decision to say we're gonna not surveil but make use of all that we know about you and make use of that data in a way that is really never happened before in, in the realm of insurance providers um, we have a lot of uh, pushbacks. We're not that far yet. We have a leak bot that launched. We just had a, 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 a telematics a solution on the app that we launched a few days ago, actually. Um, but we, what we have experienced uh, so far is that, you know, in the initial dialogues with our members, customers, I'm okay with you calling them, you know, customers or members. We both know that we have members. In the initial initial dialogue, we experienced that they said, why do I need to prevent anything? I, I have an insurance. Yeah. I mean, I don't need it. Um, and so we're trying to we're trying to frame it in the big picture that only is it not good for you as a, a member that we prevent uh, things from happening. It's also good for other members because prices will eventually go down. And eventually it will also be good for the whole, you know, society of Denmark, because if we don't have fires, if we don't have things that are, you know, uh, we need to throw out uh, that we can actually repair them or whatever, 
um, right. then it will be good for climate um, and, um, you know, the green, you know, wave that we see uh, going through. Absolutely. Um, we have a limit. We have a limited amount of time for, for the planet that we all recognize and love. And and I'm frankly inspired by what you're doing. I mean, you know, full transparency, because we need to get ahead of this curve. You know, the, the traditional sense of fire, flood insurance, uh, as we keep facing, you know, once in a lifetime environmental catastrophes, uh, we need more companies to be thinking like this. I mean, it just makes sense. Everything you're saying, like it made sense. So we did it. It's true. It does make sense, but not everybody does it. And that's what's so exciting about what you guys are building. Now, I just wanted to, uh, quickly to let you know that data is a big issue. Um, and our belief is that if we can't um, convince our members that we will, we will, you know, guard their data uh, as well as we have, you know, handled their claims in, in the past, sure. then we're losing. So, yeah, yeah. so I think data is the new big thing uh, that trust is put in, uh, in data. And, and not uh, like how we provide service. Um, so we're very anxious about that. And we're uh, very, you know, trying to be ahead of the of the whole situation. But uh, it can ruin us if, if we're not able to do it in the right way. It will it will ruin us because the, the trust of the members will disappear. Our next session asks the question we are all asking ourselves. What will our post COVID world look like? As usual, I tried to create the context for answering this question in my lecture two days before our session. Two weeks ago, in our third session, we covered some of the key ideas around building platforms that can help you to move quickly and stay agile, uh, including how to transform your business from a suite of products and into a platform in the first place, and the ways to adjust the quote-unquote change of season. As I record this lecture, eight months into working entirely from home in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, Uncertainty is, well, very much on my mind. And while we spoke indirectly last time about how one can lean into uncertainty to make important decisions from within the structure of a large corporation, heck, how one must lean into uncertainty to make important decisions from within the structure of a large corporation, we haven't yet incorporated what is bound to be the biggest question mark for anyone looking to launch a career in corporate innovation, the ultimate uncertainty. What will our world look like post-COVID? Conversations about a complete transition to virtual work or a new approach to the number of hours in a work week, the offloading of corporate real estate, and the move to a digital first business strategy have been transpiring among corporate leaders for over a decade. These conversations, however, often stayed just that. Conversations. Infrequently becoming executable plans as they pertain to that far-off, non-urgent catch-all time, the future. Well, in 2020, amidst the outbreak of the pandemic, the future arrived ahead of schedule. I want to talk about a unity in spite of, well, everything. Look, perhaps this is also on my mind because of the large number of hours I spend sitting alone in front of my computer. But when you're looking out for a change of season, it's important to know how to bring your team along with you into the future, to take that trip together. We've spoken a lot about incentives in this intensive, uh, perhaps one could argue too much. But the act of finding out how best to get the buy-in of your colleagues, of your managers, and so on, is not just about getting them to support your entrepreneurial innovation. It's about getting them on board your team. Heck, it's about starting a team with your colleagues. And look, I know that this idea can be kind of corny. Your work family isn't really a thing. You are so often discouraged from being creative in your entrepreneurial journey that you can become resentful. You can, 
Well, the reasons to be unhappy or stifled in a hierarchical bureaucratic structure are many and have actually been covered in past sessions. So let's not do that here. Not now. Let's instead think about all the ways in which COVID has opened up opportunities to see each other as people, not just as coworkers. I mean, ask yourselves, how many times have you heard your colleague's infant giggling just off camera during a Zoom or spotted their cat running across the laptop in the middle of a presentation? Let's be proactive in our search for the next season. We have all been upended, thrown for a loop. We are, all of us, in this together. In fact, every other Friday from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. New York time, I get to see and speak with all of you because we are all at home in this together, working to power through and to plow ahead. In past sessions, we've also spoken about the ways in which hierarchy can flatten in an information age, that the moving away from an industrial era chain of command also marked the opportunity to think about a peer-to-peer -peer management structure rather than a structure that works from the top down. This is also a great way to think of building a united front against a common unknown of designing for uncertainty together. I often like to think that in the wake of COVID, we are all entrepreneurs. As nearly every aspect of business and government and education and so on has been shaped by this era-defining outbreak, it is a time for all of us to consider how exactly we can innovate from the inside. Because we need to. Entire systems are being reconstructed right now. What change will you make from within a big, complex system? Can you incentivize your colleagues and your managers to do more than approve of your ideas, to join you in helping to build your idea, to work alongside you and turn that idea into a reality? So yes, the future is uncertain, but that's always been true. And sure, now feels especially uncertain, and yes, that's also true. But we have encountered, in session after session, corporate entrepreneurs who have, when faced with opposition, persevered and found a way to build their team or increase their budget or transform their entire business model. We know uncertainty can be a source of inspiration and an accelerant. If uncertainty is an accelerant, then no one has taken that to heart quite like our next guest who began his job mid-pandemic and so as a consequence hasn't even met his team in person. Barrett Krish is the CTO of Time Magazine and has been a corporate innovator at a number of different institutions, which he began to tell us right at the start of the session. I worked at NBC and HBO uh, and on, on many different challenges inside a corp big corporation. Uh, one of the last challenge was uh, launching HBO Go for Latin America, across Latin America. It was a at that point in time, it was an insurmountable challenge for us because technology didn't exist for us to stream across in also low bandwidth and high bandwidth situation of rural and city and all of that taking into account. And then ended up uh, uh, being a CTO for retail and hospitality and then being now a CTO for, for a time. Um, so I take all of those lessons that I learned in that journey uh, to then uh, apply that in my current role, right? So, uh, so that's sort of been my journey. Uh, but when I look at it uh, within time, I, I am, uh, because I've been through that, those mistakes mm -hmm. and, the, um, and the journey, I'm able to see that, okay, uh, there are places we need to move fast. There are places we need to make bets. Uh, there are, um, unless we try it, we won't know, right? So I'm, I'm bringing that culture into the organization. 
and build that culture of like being bold, being fast, um, hypothesis-based approach, um, and being able to measure it and then iterate upon things. So um, I feel like the biggest differentiator for us would be bringing that culture in as opposed to, um, I mean, any new technology. What is the problem you're now trying to solve? This is obviously a leading question because I want to talk about time next in a few minutes and what you're actually incubating. What's the, we've, we've been over a lot in this, in this intensive, how important it is the same way that if you're an entrepreneur, your job is to first identify a problem and then grow that customer segment. If you're an entrepreneur, we've talked a lot about finding incentives, reaching out to upper management or your colleagues and saying, this is the problem I'm looking to solve. You're the stakeholders I need to bring along with me, right? How can we build this united front? Um, so I, I love your story about what, what appeals to you creatively and emotionally about helping artists reach audiences, but what is the problem that you're now uh, being tasked with with finding a solution for, building a solution for at time? Yeah, I mean, at time it's, um, so as uh, most people know time, right? Uh, as, as, a, as a magazine and we do this incredibly effectively, right? So uh, like a, le a legacy uh, published magazine from, from, from I think the uh, with, with real mid-century might is how we think of it, right? It was the, it was the magazine. So, um, I mean, I, I think it's, no, it's no, um, it's not, a, it's not a, I mean, everybody knows that, you know, print is stagnant and people need to, uh, consume content digitally. So that's table stakes. You know, what we're doing is, um, converting the company into a digital first mobile first um, company that then uh, distributes content through that. And of course, having a print um, side of the business as well, but that, uh, but leading with digital, right? So that's the transformation that we're doing at a, at a philosophical level. Um, what does that actually mean? Um, could be multiple things. Um, where we're uh, focusing on is what is time? What does time mean to people? Right? Time, could, uh, the, at a base level, it means two things. One is it exudes a certain level of trust that other media companies may not in this environment that we are in, right? So, uh, uh, and then it also, uh, where we wanna lead with that is to create a large social impact with that brand. Um, and you mean social in the sort of ideological, political sense, or you want to build a following across social media? What What is the... Uh, great point. I should explain that, right? So uh, um, with with a brand like Time, the, the impact, it's almost like, you know, we have the responsibility to use the brand to create a, a larger impact for, uh, for bigger issues, uh, issues that globally we're dealing with, whether it's climate crisis, uh, race relations, um, healthcare. Uh, these are large issues we, we want to take on mm -hmm. and be the voice for uh, solving that. Our, our goal is to um, be the voice to uh, uh, bring these issues in the forefront to be able to solve. Uh, and that's our 10 year plan to look at these big issues and tackle these big issues, um, bringing the 
leaders that are uh, are the voices behind them, and then give them a platform as well. If you could define more what the the, the Time One Hundred Talks series is, I think it's a particularly clever innovation, and sort of the very definition of building something entrepreneurially. Uh, and what is Time Next, which is the larger entrepreneurial initiative that you've launched? If you could define what each of those are for us and maybe explain them. Sure. Uh, these are these are such great examples of how to get support internally and launch something that feels brand new, that feels like a startup, is as risky as a startup, but was incubated entirely by yourself and your time colleagues. It's so uh, we started with like uh, once a week. Uh, let's have a conversation with an uh, important personality uh, around. We started with you know uh, COVID, uh, and then we. Uh, talked about uh, we were talking about race and that sort of the conversation started right and then we, um, so once a week one hour um, and then we uh, had the discussion with our sponsors and said would you want to sponsor this you know so uh, and they were all in they wanted to sponsor it as well so uh, uh, now it's become twice a week um, and then we also expanded in Asia and we're expanding in Middle East. And we started a series on health as well. And were you involved in these discussions going out to sponsors? Because again, it's when you're trying to get something launched, you, you need as much support as you can get. But so often these companies are um, siloed, right? Like, well, that's the ad sales team. That's not you. You're the CTO. So was that true here? Or were the borders a little yeah. more porous? Was the collaboration a little more accessible? So the, the adder operations uh, and uh, traffic and team reports to me as well. So uh, I work closely with the ad sales. Uh, the sales uh, team, uh, we, we come up with uh, products uh, together. Yeah. So um, uh, they were having discussions with, say, a PNG, um, and their, say, PNG is coming up with an idea of like, hey, can we do this? Can time be a platform? And we have a discussion with uh, head of sales and saying, okay, let's let's put our heads together and come up with a product that will be uniquely timed, but then sponsored by uh, PNG. Hmm. So uh, same with City. So these are uh, everyday conversations. We work really closely, right? So uh, my my job is more of a being a strategist, uh, much more than being a technologist. Yeah. So um, uh, I have an amazing team that is able to pull, pull all the technology together and gives me the room to be a strategist. Towards the end of the interview, hoping to drive our conversation back to our very surreal modern moment, one of our students asked what is among the most relevant post-COVID questions you can ask someone who's leading a media company. Thank you so much for speaking to us today, Bharat. Um, my name is Akanksha, and I'm a second year at Yale and US in Singapore. And I guess my question to you is, how can tech innovation resolve or reduce growing misinformation and bias amid the election and COVID-19? And I know that you work more on strategy. So maybe like, what's the type of strategy a company like yours would adopt towards dealing with this? I mean, I, I think about this all the time. Um, we. Uh, I'll just start by saying we don't have a, if somebody has a rubric to solve this, they would have, right? It's, um, <laughs> a, a, we don't have uh, a great solution today. If great, uh, like 
trustworthy information uh, and, and is packaged in a great content uh, storytelling and quality, uh, people will actually consume that and as opposed to something that's uh, fake, right? So uh, um, that's on the one, one hand, but I know fake news travels faster than uh, real news. That's also a statistic, right? But I truly believe quality of content and good storytelling is actually important for us to um, battle misinformation. Um, the other thing is, uh, I think social media companies have a responsibility to, to clamp misinformation. Yeah. And uh, we as audience for content should, should continue to demand that. Uh, media companies should continue to demand that. Um, I come from a traditional media background as well, where uh, at NBC, HBO, and Time as well, we are uh, we have to adhere to strict guidelines from a uh, from a communication point of view that um, our our news needs to be reviewed, quality checked before it goes out. But on the other hand, social media companies are behaving like um, media companies, but they don't have the same guidelines. Uh, Facebook is already making changes. Uh, YouTube is already um, uh, uh, with their algorithms uh, moving. Uh, traditional media content is actually um, surface more than user-generated uh, fake content. Um, so they're taking steps towards it. There's going to be more. There's a lot more awareness right now. So we're just going to counter misinformation. Uh, one media company can't do it alone. Uh, we all have to work towards it, right? And I think uh, as coming from time, I, I think that we have a responsibility to create that environment as well. Being able to platformize your business and to predict the change of season are lessons that both we, the facilitators, and our students have been reflecting on and reviewing in the weeks since our session with Anne Mette. And as we look ahead to more newsworthy months entering the new year, we will need trusted, thoughtful media leaders like Barat, who is helping to transform Time Magazine into a brand built for our post-COVID, post-fake news, fragmented age. On our next episode, we will be hearing from the very leaders who gifted us the Dreams and Details framework in the first place, as well as hear from guests who returned at the end of the semester for our final session. We'll catch you next time here on Innovating from the Inside. Thanks, folks.